if you have your sermon outline and it's in the worship bulletin folder, if you'd like to use that to follow along, please pull that out. And if you have your Bibles, please open them to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be focusing this morning on verses 13 to 17. In the crypts of Westminster Abbey, the following words were written on the tomb of an Anglican bishop who lived in the 11th century. And this is what he had inscripted on his tomb. He said, when I was young and free, my imagination had no limits. I dreamed of changing the world, and as I grew older and wiser, I discovered that the real world would not change. So I shortened my sight somewhat and decided to change only my country. But it too seemed immovable. And as I grew in my twilight years, in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me. But alas, they would have none of it. And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realized if I had only changed myself first, then by my example, I would have changed my family. And from their inspiration and encouragement, I would have been able to better my country. And who knows, I may have even changed my world. I think the Anglican bishop shared a truth that sometimes we struggle with. And what we struggle with is we often see other people that we would like to change thinking if they would be different, my life would be better. When the reality of what this bishop said is the only person we can truly change and influence is ourself. Again, we tell ourselves how much better this life would be if this person or that person would be different. But I too understand and accept that most often when I am confronted with an issue or a problem or a person, that God often has one person in mind that he wants to change, and that person is me. I can spend a lot of time thinking about how that other person can change when the prayer that I believe God has for me is this prayer. God, change me. What do you want me to learn? What do you want me to do? What new insight do you have for me that will help me live the life that you have called me to live, and thereby, by having a genuine changed life, change my world. I believe that prayer, if humbly prayed, will transform my life and will honor God. Well, this morning we want to focus in on five essential elements for what you and I can do in our lives, not pray for someone else, but five things that we can do to change our life. Five things that are not miracle cures, but five principles that if applied, God can use to begin and to continue that process of making us who he wants us to be. Now, if you have your Bibles open, please follow along as I read Mark 2, beginning with verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to, them, he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, now here we're changing gears. We're going from Jesus talking to Matthew and calling him. Now we're in Matthew's home. And as he reclined at the table in his, Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. These five verses focus basically 
on God calling Levi to be one of his disciples. And one of the first things we discover about Levi is that he was a tax collector. In verse 14 it says, And as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax collector booth. Anyway, anyway, he was at his tax office doing his work. Now here's the question. What kind of a person was Levi? What kind of a person was Jesus calling to be a part of his inner circle of confidence, the men that he was entrusting to share the gospel with the world? Now the Romans collected their taxes through a, a system called tax farming. They assigned a certain district, a county, a region, a certain amount of money that needed to be raised for that region, and then they sold that right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. In some ways, it'd be like selling a McDonald's franchise. You buy the franchise, you pay the required money at the end of the year, and then you get to keep whatever money is left. Well, this arrangement made tax collecting a very profitable business for anyone that had high financial aspirations and low ethical standards. For tax collectors, we're always looking for ways to squeeze more money out of people. Now, there were certain tax laws that you couldn't move from. In other words, there was a 1% income tax. Wouldn't that be nice? 1% income tax. You paid one-tenth on all the grain you harvest, and you had to pay one-fifth of all the fruit or wine that you produced. But there were other areas where these tax collectors could get the people and squeeze out of them whatever they wanted. In fact, they could tax you, they, you could be taxed for using a road or a bridge. And let's say you had a cart and you were hauling grain, a tax collector could stop you and literally tax you for that cart, and if they wanted to, they could tax you for every wheel that was on that cart. The tax collecting really, really began to become legalized stealing, charging more money than was necessary or reasonable. And this is the kicker. If the people were unable to pay the tax, rather than turn them in, these gracious tax collectors offered to loan their money at an exorbitant rate. So you can see why Jewish tax collectors were hated. One, they were seen as selling out to the Romans. The other, they were seen as abusing their own people, the Jews. They were considered unclean, barred from attending the synagogue. They couldn't even get into church. They were prohibited from testifying in a Jewish court. And as, as I studied this week, I also found out that Jews didn't have to tell them the truth. The le Jewish leader says, you do not, these tax collectors have, are, will abuse you so much, you can freely lie to them without having any consequence to that. A tax collector was seen as the same way a robber or a liar was seen. They were despised and hated because of the pain and distress they brought on other people. So here it is. Here he is, Levi. A person Jesus called to be one of his main men, he was an accomplished sinner. He was hated by most of the people who knew him, and the only people he was accepted by were those who had the same moral character. Thieves, thugs, prostitutes, and of course other tax collectors. Now I want you to keep this picture of who Matthew is in your mind as we go into the rest of the passage. Now before we transition into the rest of the passage, let me say one more thing. Jesus had just recruited Levi to be a member of his inner team. And friends, Jesus could not have picked a more unqualified person. He was a cheat, a liar, no one had anything good to say about him. But this is it. Jesus is not looking at what he was, but what he could become. Jesus is looking at the need of his heart, not listening to Levi's reputation in the street. And there was something pretty cool that was about to happen to Levi. He was going to get a name change. 
Now, we know that God has a history of changing people's names in order to present them with a new future. He changed Abram to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. He changed Jacob's name to Israel, meaning having power with God. He changed Simon's name, which means God has heard, to Peter, meaning rock. And now he was going to change Levi's name to Matthew. And you know what Matthew means? It means gift from God. Can you imagine? What a name. Here is Levi, a disrespected tax collector that everyone despises. And what does Jesus call him? He says, Levi, I want you to do this. I want you to realize not your past, but I want you to realize that you are a gift from God. What a wonderful way, friends, that God has, us, has of conveying his grace, of changing our lives, because he sees us not as we are, but what we can be. And the five essentials that we're going to talk about are the basic steps that Matthew went through to become the man that people talk about all over the world literally every week. So we want to talk about five essentials of being committed to Jesus. Number one, being committed to Jesus means that I will take time with Jesus' teaching. Verse 13 says, And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was what? He was teaching them. Now we know, friends, that whenever Jesus went into a city, what did he often do? More often than not. He went into the, into the synagogue and he began to teach. Now what was he teaching them? He was teaching them that there was a new way of life coming. A new way to relate to God. That he was the coming Messiah. And he was teaching them about the, this new kingdom of God that was being established through his ministry and lived out by these twelve disciples. He was teaching them that it was more blessed to give than to receive. He was teaching them they didn't have to go to the priest but they could talk to them. He was teaching them ultimately there would be no more need for sacrifice because he was going to be the sacrificial lamb. And if you and I are going to absorb his teaching, we are going to need to be students of his word. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Friends, never believe for a moment that the words of this book are like any other book. The words that are written are a picture of God to us and they are inspired by the Holy Spirit and being inspired by the Holy Spirit, as you read them, they have a transforming effect on your life. You can't read these words without being changed. You can't have these words come into your mind without it changing the way you think, changing the way you believe. And because of that, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 105, that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. What a wonderful treasure that God has given us. These verses state that God's word is God, that God and his word cannot be separated. There is nothing in God's word that is not descriptive of God, and everything we need to know about God is in the Bible. The Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts. The Bible is God's letter of love to everyone who picks it up and reads it. It is a nourishment to us like manna was to the children of Israel. It is hope to us like the promise of love is to a young woman about to be married. It is correction to us like the tender direction that a father gives his young child. And I would suppose that if you were like me and others I know, that one of the most persistent forms of guilt that we can have is the guilt that comes because you do not think you spend enough time in his word. 
And I want to encourage you to do something because this is the truth. The devil, Satan, will do whatever he can to get you not to read this word because he knows the power of it. He knows that if you read this book, it will change your life. So here's something that I think would be helpful for you if you ever feel guilt for not being in God's Word. The next time you feel guilty, instead of, you, instead of beating yourself up, lift Jesus up. Begin praising God. Thank Him for loving you, for providing for you. Thank you for giving you His Word, that the Word that comforts you when you're down, that directs you when you're lost, and tells you that you are forgiven when you sin. Because this is what happens. If you let that guilt about not being in God's Word control you, if you allow that guilt to stay around in your mind long enough, the negativity that you feel about your guilt will begin to attach itself to God's Word. And every time you even think about reading God's Word, you will feel bad, and no one wants to feel bad, so you'll stay away from what feels bad, and you won't read God's Word. So what do you do? You change the way you think, and you give praise to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks. Give thanks in your desire not to read God's Word, and He'll change and help you to have a desire to read His Word. Because you're changing the picture you have of God's Word to you. Sally Lloyd-Jones, in her book, The Jesus Storybook, says this about the Bible in her introduction. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He's done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people that you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes, hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves His children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story there is a baby, and every story in the Bible whispers His name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, a piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you see a beautiful picture. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the ESV version of the Bible says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God's Word breathed out to inspire us, to change us. And Proverbs 35 and 6 says that every word of God proves true. You will never be disappointed. You will never be led astray. You will always be placed in the right direction. <clears throat> there is no exception. You find God in His Word. A mom was startled to find her five-year-old daughter going through a new Bible storybook and circling the word God wherever she found it in the pages. Well, stifling her reaction to discipline her for damaging this book, the mom took a quiet breath, a quick breath, and quietly asked, why are you doing that? And the little girl's matter-of-fact answer was this, well, Mom, so that I can find, so that I will know where to find God when I need Him. Friend, that's it. 
We need to, this is where we find God. And as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we find God in these pages over and over again speaking His words of truth to us. In order to grow in Him, we need to spend time with His teaching. Number two, we need to humbly acknowledge my sin. I need to humbly acknowledge my sin and my need. Verse 14, and as he passed by Jesus, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, friends, this is one thing that I'm sure, like me, you've discovered, <clears throat> that without an awareness of our sin and the knowledge and decision to leave our sin behind, we cannot truly follow Jesus. It's impossible. We can act like we follow Jesus. We can give the appearance that we follow Jesus. We can tell people that we follow Jesus, but we only follow Jesus when we're broken by our sin and fully aware of our need of God, of His grace, and of the redemption, the transformation that He will bring. Now, what does it mean to be broken? In its basic idea, the word broken carries with it the thought that an object that is broken no longer is usable in its current broken state. In other words, a broken person acknowledges that it is not usable in the state it is. So we come to God broken saying, God, in this broken condition of sin, you cannot use me in the way you want to. I need healing. But this is interesting. A broken person can be broken but not acknowledge it. A person can be broken and go on living as if they are not. They can limp along life trying to convince themselves and others that they're doing okay, but those who observe them see their limp. For me, I had to have a broken experience before I fully acknowledged my sin and asked God to rebuild my life. But here's the interesting thing. The moment I did that, and I could take you to the exact place it happened, from that moment on, God began a series of change literally doing miracles in answer to my prayer to rebuild my life. When we read God's Word, He shows us where we're broken, where we have a need to be rebuilt. And you'll notice that the first word of this point is that we humbly acknowledge. The word humble in this use of the word means that we're willing to be totally transparent and offer no excuse for our sin. You know, we like to say, I sin, but... The truly humble person says, I sinned. We acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge the damage it's done. We carry with us the pain, regret, and we bring it all to Jesus so that His grace and His mercy can wipe away every tear and turn to good all that the enemy wanted to use for bad. Humility means that we are willing to ask for help. Verse 14 is a recounting of the day that Matthew accepted Jesus, committed his life to follow Christ, he was transformed from a tax-collecting lover of money to a Christ-following lover of God. John MacArthur states that everything that controlled his life up to that point no longer had any meaning. The money, the power, the pleasures of this world all lost their grip on his heart. Under conviction, all he wanted was forgiveness, and all he knew was that Jesus was the only one who could provide it. See, oftentimes we spend time looking here and there when Jesus is the only cure. When Matthew followed Jesus, he gave up everything. There was no going back because his life of sin was connected to his profession. So once he walked out of that tax collector's office, he could never go back. His, re his repentance required consequences that he was willing to accept. He lost a career but gained an eternal reward. He lost material possessions but gained spiritual life. He lost earthly security but gained a heavenly future. He lost financial reward but gained an unfading crown. All because he was willing to be humble, to admit his sin, 
and call for help. Humility and a willingness to go hand to a willingness to ask for help go hand in hand. And let me make this statement, friends. There is no safer place to be than in humility before God. There is no place safer for you and I than to get on our knees and in a position of humility say, God, I am lost, and without you I'll never make it. We fight that because we fear the insecurity of being vulnerable when God says, just test me, try me. And see that your very willingness to humble yourself before me is your stepping stone to finding yourself and who you've been created to be. More than 100 years ago, a British revivalist issued a holy dare, a timeless challenge that is as true today as the day when it was uttered, and the challenge is this. The world has yet to see what God will do with and for and through and in and by the man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. See, humility... Confessing, acknowledge, owning our sin, all require a risk. At times, sometimes they might even require us to look foolish. But let me suggest that it's those who are willing to be humble, who are willing to even appear foolish, are the ones that free God up to use them. Noah looked foolish building an ark in the desert. Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at the age of 90. Moses looked foolish and took a risk when he told Pharaoh to let God's people go. The Israelite army took a chance by marching around Jericho, blowing their trumpets. David looked foolish, attacking Goliath with a slingshot. The wise men took a chance when they followed a star to Bethlehem. Peter appeared foolish, stepping out of a boat into open water. And Jesus looked foolish and defeated, hanging half naked on a cross. But those statements are only half the story. Noah stayed afloat during the flood. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Moses delivered the children of Israel. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. David defeated Goliath. The wise men found the Christ child. Peter walked on the water, and Jesus rose from the dead. Every one of these acts took an act of courage and an act of risk. It opened up the potential of God to change their lives. And friends, it's the same for us today. When we get humble before God, when we release ourselves of ourselves, and we say, God, here I am, use me, the power of God comes into our life and changes us to be not what we are, but to be what God has called us to be. And will you join me in taking that risk of speaking those words? Number three, make the decision to follow Jesus. Matthew made a decision. He decided. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose. Matthew rose and followed him. My mentor some time ago, and I'd, if you think of me and my mentor, his name is Dwayne Jensen. He'd been my mentor for probably about 15 to 18 years, maybe longer. He found out last week that he has cancer on his left lung and his spine, and the doctors have given him months to, li- months to live. He is one of the most godly men I know, and he asked me to pray recently for this. He says, God, very pray that God would give me the capacity to receive all that he has for me. And when he told me that, it was an amazing statement. And But as much what we're talking about this morning, God, give us the capacity and the willingness to receive all you have for, for me. But this wise man once told me, he said, Barry, do you remember the song, I have decided to follow Jesus? We know that. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. 
The world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. There is something that happens when we decide, when we decide to follow Jesus. And the more decisive the decision, the more guaranteed the outcome. The more decisive the decision, the more complete we are in submitting ourselves to Christ, the more guaranteed the outcome. Remember Joshua's words to the people of Israel before he died? He said, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the God of your fathers, your God that served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, what will we do? We will serve the Lord. And remember the people's response. They went through a few things, and then they said, therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. See, friends, this is the principle. What we choose decides who we will become and what we do. Matthew decided to follow Jesus, and we're reading about him today. And no doubt, what God can do with you, what he wants to do with you, will be more than you can ever do with yourself. What God wants to do with you, what God wants to do with me, is far more than we will ever do on our own without God. Number four, I will specifically share Jesus with others. Verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. See, Matthew's life was on a new path, and he decided to sponsor a reception in Jesus' honor. See, this is it. His life was changed. He had left his job and taken on a new position with a former carpenter. The change was on, and he was ready. But there was something, one thing he had to do before he left town. So he called a caterer and invited his friends over to his home. Now, who were his friends? They were the known criminals, the thieves, the thugs, the prostitutes, and his tax-collecting friends. Now, why did Jesus hold this? Why did Matthew hold this reception? Two reasons. Number one, he wanted to thank and honor Jesus. And I can imagine the scene. That before the meal was served, Matthew got up and he introduced Jesus and then he told his story. He told the story of where he was and what he was feeling and the decision he had made. And by that time, everybody knew that this new man, Levi, now Matthew, had given up his lucrative tax collecting job and they wanted to know why. So Matthew told them. He says, once I was lost, and now I'm found. And I can imagine that there were more than a few tears shed, as many of those there would identify with the guilt, the shame, the feeling of rejection, the wondering how they could ever change, how their life could be different. And then Matthew told them his story. And there was Jesus, right in the middle. These were the people he came to help, the ones, the lost sheep he came to save. He does not judge. He offers a new new life. Friends, the greatest gift you can give those, your friends who don't know Jesus, is telling them what Jesus has done for you and what he's doing for you. It doesn't have to be high pressure. In fact, it's better if it isn't. Your story, the simple expression of your story, And then we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to take your words and massage it into the very fiber of their being so that they too will have the opportunity to realize their life can be different. If you want to know a biblical example of how to reach those, you find it here. 
Get your friends together. Tell them, either in person or through a group, what Jesus has changed your, ni- your life, how he has changed your life. Do not continue or in- continue to engage in the behaviors that they're struggling with. You lovingly declare your commitment to Jesus and show them by how you live, by following him, that a new way of living is possible and you live Leave the decision up to them. But you do not revert your lifestyle back to what they're doing. You live a new life, that they will have a clear path. That if they decide to live for Jesus, that your life will be plain by how you live, what you say, your attitudes and perspective, by how they observe you through every day. You follow Jesus. They can then follow the example that you have set. Naturally share what Jesus has done without judgment and say, well, This has changed my life. I invite you to join me. And number five, being committed to Jesus means that I will identify with the mission of Jesus. Verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Two points from these two verses. Those who reject Jesus will always find something wrong with those who follow him. Let me say that again. Those who reject Jesus will always find something wrong with those who follow him. You probably heard of this past week that Job, uh, that Joy Barr from The View made quite an accusation against Vice President Pence saying that he said he listened to God, and of course she associated that with mental illness. Been quite a fervor connected to that as people have responded. But it's another example of people who rejecting Jesus find a way to attack. The scribes of Pharisees were called to have the same compassion and concern that Jesus did for the people that Jesus was eating with that day. So they, but they rejected Jesus So they did what people who reject Jesus do. They criticize, they accuse, what you're doing is wrong, and they go on and on, trying to beef up the lie of their life by speaking louder. What's our response? Don't fall for it. Let the words roll off your back, because Paul says in Romans this, if God be for us, who can be against us? The words of an accuser are meant to simply take the attention off of their sin and put the blame on the one who is sincerely following Jesus. Number two, know your purpose. Know my purpose. If Jesus came to help and offer healing to the sick, that too is what we are to be about. We are never to forget that God's message of love, sacrifice, forgiveness, and grace is the most important message anyone can hear and fight the inclination to judge and embrace the call to love. Some of the people that can be most vile and most difficult to be with are the ones with the emptiest hearts that are somehow trying to find, even through their anger, an identity that will get them through each day. We pray, we share, and we trust God to change the heart. So why do we follow Jesus? Let's get back to Matthew for a moment. Why should you and I be a disciple? Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Mark, says this. He says, Levi was the most unacceptable man to become one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus sought out the man no one else wanted, the one everyone wished would fall under the immediate wrath of God. This, of course, was to become one of the trademarks of Jesus' ministry, 
reaching out to those that others had rejected. Jesus saw a man in Levi, not a category. It's important. He saw a man, not a category. He knew what Levi could become. Centuries ago, a number of workmen were seen dragging a great marble block into the city of Florence, Italy. It had come from the famous marble quarries of Carrera and was intended to be made into a statue of a great Old Testament prophet. But it contained, that block contained some imperfections. And when the great sculpture, Donatello, saw it, he refused it at once. And so that rejected piece of stone lay in the cathedral yard, a useless block of rock. Well, one day another sculpture caught sight of the flawed block, and as he examined it, there arose in his mind something of immense beauty, and he resolved to sculpt it. For two years, the artist worked feverishly on the work of art, and finally on January 25, 1504, the greatest artist of the day assembled to see what he had made of the despised and rejected block. Among them were Botticelli, Leonardo da Vinci, and Pietro, the teacher of Raphael. As the veil was dropped to the floor, the statue was met with a chorus of praise. It was a masterpiece. And succeeding centuries have confirmed that judgment to be true. Michelangelo's David is one of the greatest works of art the world has ever known. Christ saw in the flawed life of Levi, the tax collector, a Matthew, a gift from God, whose life and testimony are spoken of weekly across our world. Christ sees in you and he sees in me. He sees in our flawed lives. He sees people of great potential. Paul says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God sees in you what no one else sees. And he is waiting for you and I to put behind us the temporary pursuits of this life and embrace the eternal calling that he has for us. God loves you. He sees your potential. And regardless of your age, regardless of your past, regardless of even what you think about yourself, he wants to use you. He loves you and he wants to use you and you and you and you.